0: To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, check us out at patreon.com slash forensic tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. You have the wrong guy. Words used by killers, rapists, and the scum of the earth. Police got their man, another lying killer. But don't take the killer's word for it. Let's let the forensic speak. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 77, Christopher Tapp. If you're interested in supporting the show, getting early access to weekly episodes, bonus material, ad-free episodes, merchandise, and much more, consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Another great way you can help support Forensic Tales is by leaving us a positive rating with a review or tell friends and family who love true crime about us. Now, let's jump right into this week's case. In June 1996, 19 year old Angie Dodge was living a dream life. She had just moved out of her parents' house and into her very first apartment in Idaho. But on the morning of June 13, 1996, Angie failed to show up to work. Angie not showing up to work was incredibly out of character. She just wasn't the type of person who didn't show up to work or at least call someone if she wasn't feeling well or planning to be out from work. Plus, she recently moved into her apartment, so she needed the money. Once a few hours passed and Angie still hadn't shown up to work, her coworkers knew something was wrong. They tried getting a hold of her, but there's no answer at her apartment. So, Two of her coworkers decided to drive to her apartment to see if everything is okay. Once inside, they make a brutal discovery. Angie, their 19 year old friend and coworker, is found dead. She had been brutally raped and stabbed to death. Inside Angie's apartment, the Idaho Police Department recovered a mountain of forensic evidence. Any time you have a case where a victim is murdered inside of a confined space, there's a good chance the killer left behind DNA or other forensic evidence all over the place. Especially when a victim is raped, the chances of recovering the offender's DNA go up exponentially. In addition, the killer will leave behind DNA or other trace evidence on the victim's body during the assault. And because Angie was murdered inside of her apartment, he likely left behind many fingerprints. During their initial investigation, investigators recovered semen and hair samples from Angie's body. Testing on the samples revealed that the semen and the hair belonged to the same male offender, Angie's killer. Shortly after discovering Angie's body, Investigators canvassed her apartment to find if any neighbors heard or saw anything that night. Because she had been raped and stabbed to death inside of a very small apartment, you hope that at least one person in her neighborhood heard or saw something suspicious. So the police also questioned the people Angie was with earlier that night. But nobody heard anything, saw anything, nobody knew anything. Anything. Who would want to murder sweet Angie? Angie was born Angie Ray Dodge on December 21st, 1977, in Vancouver, Washington. Born to parents Carol and Jack Dodge, Angie was the youngest of four children in her family. Angie was also Jack and Carol's only daughter. Angie was described as the perfect child. She was brilliant. Happy, and showed an uncommon enthusiasm for life. When she was young, she attended preschool in San Diego, California, then moved with her brothers and parents to Idaho Falls for high school. During high school, Angie made money tutoring younger students in math and English. She was the type of person who found joy in helping others. She graduated from high school in 1995 at the top of her class and was accepted at Idaho State University. She enjoyed camping, holidays, and nature, and loved spending time with her parents, family, or just hanging out with friends. The night before Angie was murdered, she stopped by her parents' house on June 12, 1996, a little after 9 p.m. She stopped by to tell her mom just how excited she was about her new apartment. But... She also told her mom that she was feeling a little anxious about growing up and this new time in her life, feelings that any 18-year-old would share. While talking to Angie, Carol remembers telling her daughter that she loved her and that even though she was growing up and becoming this young adult, she will always be her little girl. She hugged Angie before she left. That was the last time her parents saw her alive the Idaho Police Department had their hands full trying to solve Angie's murder. The only evidence they had in the case was semen and hair samples, but they had no idea who they belonged to. They also didn't have any eyewitnesses who heard or saw anything around Angie's apartment that night. So the police continued to look for a suspect over the next several months. No arrests were made until the investigation turned a corner Six months later, the police arrests a man from Idaho Falls by the name of Benjamin Hobbs. Police arrest Hobbs in Eiley, Nevada. He's arrested and charged with sexual assault. After detectives in Idaho Falls learn about Hobbs' arrest, they interview Hobbs and several of his friends to find out if any of them are responsible for Angie's murder. One of the friends tells the police to speak to 20-year-old Christopher Tapp. Once the police talk to Christopher Tapp, they learn he actually knows Angie Dodge. Christopher Tapp and Angie Dodge were both a part of a group called the River Rats. The River Rats was just a name given to many young adults, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, who hung out down by Snake River a spot not too far from Angie's apartment. Christopher Tapp and Angie weren't necessarily close friends at the time of her murder, but after speaking with Christopher, the police learn that he was with Angie the night before she died. The police first questioned Christopher about Angie's murder on January 7th, 1997, but after a few hours of questioning, the police realize they don't have any solid evidence against him other than the fact that he was with Angie the night before. So they let him go for the night. A few days later, on January 10th, the police brought Christopher back in for more questioning. Like the first interview, the police have nothing to hold him on, so he's released once more. But before they let Christopher leave the police station, they scheduled a third interview for him to come back the following day. But when it came time for the third interview, Christopher didn't show up, and his parents hired an attorney. Once Christopher failed to show up for the third interview, detectives made their way to his parents' house. Christopher's mom tells the detectives that her son will cooperate with the police, but he won't sit down with them again until his attorney is present. Now, I know many people think that when someone hires an attorney, that this is a sign of guilt. Why would you hire an attorney for something if you're innocent, right? Well, this is a complicated decision. Personally, I'm all for hiring an attorney in Christopher's shoes. Although he's been proclaiming his innocence in Angie's murder all along, he realizes that after two, three interviews, that the police are starting to see him as a possible suspect. And if you're finding yourself in a situation where you've now become a suspect in a rape and murder case, hiring an attorney isn't a bad idea even when you are 100% innocent. I also think it's wise to hire an attorney here because before you agree to sit down with the police for a third time, you want to make sure that you're represented. Unfortunately, when a potential suspect decides to do this and hire an attorney, the police see this as a sign of guilt. And in Christopher's case, that's exactly what the Idaho Police Department sees. Instead of waiting for Christopher to return on January 13th with his attorney, the police return to his parents' house with an arrest warrant. Christopher is arrested and charged with being an accessory to a felony in Angie's case. Idaho police detectives believe they have their suspects in Angie's murder, Benjamin Hobbs and Christopher Tapp. Too many inconsistencies existed in Christopher's story. When the police first interviewed Christopher about Angie's murder, he said that neither he nor Hobbs had anything to do with it. He also claimed he knew nothing about it and didn't even know anyone who had killed her until the police told him. But on January 10th, when the police sat down with him for the second time, his story slightly changed. This time, Christopher said that his friend, Benjamin Hobbs, killed Angie and that his friend had asked him to provide an alibi. This was completely different from the day before when he said that he knew nothing about the murder. Then, five days later, on January 15th, Christopher tells a completely different story to police. He's now saying that he was actually with Hobbs when he committed the murder. So Christopher wasn't only asked to provide an alibi for his friend, but he was also present. He was there. He was inside Angie's apartment when everything went down. According to Christopher, Hobbs raped and killed Angie because he was upset at her for, quote, trying to break up his marriage. After his confession, Christopher entered into an immunity agreement with the prosecution on January 15th and 17th. Under the terms of the immunity agreement, Christopher agreed to provide truthful testimony about the murder. He would also only be charged with a lesser crime of aiding and abetting in return for this testimony, and his friend, Benjamin Hobb, would be charged with the more serious crimes of rape and murder. Immunity agreements and plea bargains are used in our system all the time, especially in cases involving more than one suspect. It's very common for the prosecution to offer a plea bargain to a person who maybe has less involvement and then use that person's testimony against someone else who was greater involved in the crime. But before the prosecution could get Christopher's sworn testimony against his friend Hobbs, there was a problem. On January 18th, Christopher was supposed to provide his testimony, but forensic test returned before he could provide the testimony. Forensic test revealed that the semen and hair samples collected from Angie's body did not match Christopher Tap, or Benjamin Hobbs. Instead, the samples belonged to someone else. So how could Christopher or Benjamin be involved if the semen and hair sample didn't match either one of them? That's when Christopher's story changes yet again. Christopher tells the police that there was a third man involved in Angie's murder, Jeremy Sargis. He now says that Sargis and Hobbs both participated in the murder. So the police decide to test Jeremy Sargis' DNA to the semen and hair sample. But his test also came back negative. He was not a match, just like Christopher and Benjamin. Plus, Jeremy Sargis had an airtight alibi for the night of Angie's murder. By the end of January, the Idaho police are frustrated with Christopher. He's now told them three or four different stories about what happened that night. And every story seems to be a complete lie. So on January 29th, the prosecution decided to withdraw their immunity agreement with Christopher. If he wasn't willing to stick to the same story and tell the truth, they were no longer willing to work with him. The same day that the prosecution withdrew their immunity agreement, the police took Christopher to Angie's apartment. They did so without Christopher's attorney present. At the apartment, Christopher offered up some more information to the police. He said he held Angie while she was raped and being stabbed to death. In his story now, Hobbs was present, but no Jeremy Sargis. He also added another friend of Hobbs who was also at the apartment, a guy he didn't really know and only knew that his first name was Mike. By this point, the police have at least five different versions, if we can keep up, everything provided by Christopher. He went from having nothing to do with Angie's murder to becoming the guy who held her down. So what is the truth here? Well, the police thought they found their truth when they administered five, yes, five polygraph tests on Christopher. While taking his fifth polygraph test, the police informed Christopher that the prosecution might be willing to offer him a lenient sentence for his role if he had been in fear for his life from his accomplice, Benjamin Hobbs. Eventually, Christopher said he only joined in on the attack on Angie because Hobbs threatened to kill him if he didn't help during the assault. After the police finished the fifth polygraph, officers told Christopher he passed when, in fact, he didn't. On February 3rd, Christopher was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, rape, and the use of a deadly weapon during the commission of a felony. In a bizarre twist, Benjamin Hobbs was never charged with Angie's murder. Although he was convicted of sexual assault in Nevada for a different crime, the police didn't believe he was ever involved in Angie's murder. Based on the inconsistencies in Christopher's story as well as the polygraph results, the police believed Christopher acted alone and only involved Benjamin Hobbs as a way to pin the attack on his friend. Although Jeremy Sargis was initially charged with being an accessory to the crime, the charges against him were eventually dropped, and the police never questioned him about the murder again. Christopher went to trial about a year later on May 12, 1998. At trial, Christopher's defense attorney argued that his confession should be completely thrown out because the police coerced it. According to this attorney, Christopher never wanted to confess to the murder, but was desperate for a lesser sentence. But the judge disagreed. The judge ruled that the majority of the taped confessions could be used as evidence against him the judge in the case withdrew only a tiny fraction of the dozens of taped police interviews from the jury. From the start of the trial, Christopher had the odds stacked against him. Even though the semen and hair sample found inside Angie's apartment didn't match Christopher's DNA, the prosecution still had those taped confessions. They didn't need to really argue about why the forensic evidence didn't fit, they had the defendant's own admission about his involvement in the crime. They had tapes and tapes of Christopher changing his story half a dozen times, as well as a signed confession. Christopher basically confessed to the entire thing. Now, in most cases, admission is more than enough for a jury to convict even without forensic evidence or forensic evidence that corroborates the defendant's confessions. More often than not, a jury is going to convict. Why? Because the defendant admitted to the murder. Case closed. The prosecution also presented witness testimony against Christopher. A woman named Destiny Osborne took the stand to testify for the prosecution. Destiny claimed to have been a party at a couple days after Angie was murdered. She said Christopher and Benjamin were also at this party. Sometime during the night, she overheard both of the men talking about Angie's murder. Even though Destiny admitted that she had taken some drugs and drank alcohol before the party, she remembered hearing Benjamin Hobbs saying that he killed Angie because she owed him drug money, specifically cash for meth. Destiny's testimony was the first time we've talked about Angie using drugs or being involved with any type of drug deal. This part of her testimony also directly contradicts Benjamin Hobbs and Christopher's account that Angie didn't do drugs. During their interviews with the police, both Benjamin and Christopher said that Angie wasn't involved in drug deals with them. They never saw her use any type of drug during their relationship. But regardless, Destiny Osborne's testimony is compelling to the jury. She became someone outside of Christopher and Benjamin Hobbs who heard Christopher talk about his involvement in the murder. So now you have Christopher's confession coupled with the testimony of a third party. At his trial, Christopher chose not to testify, a smart decision in most criminal cases. No matter how guilty or innocent you may be, for the most part, it's better for the defendant not to testify, especially in a first-degree murder case like this. Christopher's defense called a witness that provided an alibi for him on the night of the murder. This witness said Christopher couldn't have committed the murder or have even been at Angie's apartment that night because Christopher had a date and slept with a woman. Christopher's girlfriend also verified this date because she caught him and found out about this other woman the day after the murder. Now, to counter, the prosecution had their own set of witnesses who testified that the defense witness had his dates mixed up. The day Christopher went on his date and cheated on his girlfriend wasn't the same night he killed Angie, at least according to the prosecution. After several days of testimony and hours of deliberation, a jury of three men and nine women came back with a verdict, guilty. Christopher was convicted on all three charges. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 30 years for the murder charge and 10 years for the rape charge. He was probably going to spend the rest of his life in prison. After the trial and sentencing hearing, Christopher was sent to prison. Angie Dodge's family was left behind to continue to grieve the loss of their 18-year-old daughter. Although Christopher's conviction could never bring her back, his conviction served as a bit of justice. Angie's family must have felt Some sort of peace, knowing that the person responsible for her murder was behind bars. There is justice, after all. End of story, right? The bad guy goes to prison for the rest of his life? The family of the victim gets closure? Well, not so much. This is only the beginning. Immediately after Christopher started serving his prison sentence, he began his appeal process. Through his new attorneys, he tried every possible angle to be granted an appeal. His attorneys argued that the prosecution voided his immunity agreement and violated his rights. They argued whether or not he had a, quote, diminished capacity at the time of the murder as well as a trial, meaning Christopher wasn't mentally fit or shouldn't be held responsible. They also argued ineffective assistance of counsel. They said that his first trial lawyer was ineffective at trying to get his taped confessions suppressed as evidence. His new attorneys tried everything they could to get Christopher an appeal and a new criminal trial. But everything failed. For several years, Christopher's attempts at an appeal were rejected by the Court of Appeals. The system was satisfied with the results of the original trial. You can't just get an appeal simply because you don't like the outcome of the case. That's just not how our justice system works. There has to be some sort of error made by the trial court to get an appeal or a new trial. In 2001, Christopher's defense team did win a small victory in the case, although not a success big enough to grant him a new trial. In 2001, an Idaho Court of Appeals judge believed his Miranda rights were violated during a few of those police interviews, but not all the interviews. Some of the police interrogations did violate his Miranda rights. The police violated his rights by continuing to question Christopher after requesting his lawyer be present. Although the judge thought that they did violate Christopher's rights in a couple of these interviews, this same judge believed that the error was harmless. In other words, the violation wouldn't have changed the outcome of the verdict. So Christopher continued to sit in prison and fight to have his conviction overturned. Finally, in 2007, the Innocence Project decided to take on the case. The Innocence Project is a nonprofit organization to exonerate the wrongfully convicted. They take on cases in which they believe a person has been wrongfully convicted of a crime, usually a serious crime, just like Christopher's. Most, if not all, of the cases are taken on pro bono, meaning the defendant gets represented by the Innocence Project without costing them. This organization truly believes in exonerating those wrongfully convicted of a crime. In 2001, when the Innocence Project took on Christopher's case, this was a huge step forward. The Innocence Project's first objective was to request DNA testing on the hair sample found on Angie's clothes and body after her murder. Initially, the hair samples were only visually inspected by experts. As a result, they never did a full DNA test on the evidence. The Innocence Project sent the hair sample to a regional testing facility operated by the FBI. The lab performed mitochondrial DNA testing on the hair sample. The DNA testing results confirmed that the hair sample was consistent with the DNA found in the semen sample. Both samples were not a match to Christopher's DNA. With the mitochondrial DNA test results, the Innocence Project pushed for more DNA testing to identify the actual suspect. Easier said than done. In 2012, an Idaho judge rejected the Innocence Project's request. The judge cited that, quote, while DNA testing may be relevant in identifying one of the assailants, such does not make it more probable that TAP is innocent, end quote. So the judge is saying that this type of DNA testing might identify a second person involved in Angie's murder, But this DNA testing is not going to prove Christopher was innocent or didn't have any part in the crime. The DNA testing isn't going to take back tape after tape of Christopher's own confession. The only other DNA testing that they did on the case in 2012 was some testing on Angie's sweatpants, T-shirt, and a teddy bear found near her body. This test also ruled out Christopher and Benjamin Hobbs as contributors to the unknown DNA found on all of these items. Although the results raises some questions, it isn't enough to grant Christopher a new trial. Even without the court's blessing to have additional DNA tests done, The Innocence Project seeks the help and support of the Idaho Police Department themselves. Somehow, they're able to convince the police department to look into this unknown male DNA sample found in the hair and semen on Angie's body. To try and find the contributor, the police department uses the technique known as genetic genealogy. Now, if you've listened to any of the cases we've covered on the show that uses genetic genealogy, you know that this is my favorite type of forensic science lately. Genetic genealogy is a process that has led to so many cold cases finally being solved. This process uses both DNA testing as well as traditional genealogical research to help identify suspects. So if we have a DNA sample, but we don't know who it belongs to, we can take that sample and compare it to family members. Then, by the process of elimination, we can narrow down a suspect list. This is the same method used to finally catch Joseph James D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. D'Angelo was ultimately caught decades later after investigators were able to take his DNA sample and match it to a family member. So the Idaho Police Department with the Innocence Project are hopeful that genetic genealogy can help track down who they believe is Angie's killer. The police had to determine the male lineage that matched the Y chromosome found in the evidence samples to track down a suspect. At first all the men they tested from this lineage didn't match the full profile. While the Idaho Police Department continued their genetic search, Christopher's case received additional backup outside of the Innocence Project. This support came from an unlikely source, Angie Dodge's mother, Carol Dodge. After Christopher's conviction, Carol Dodge became a strong advocate for him to receive the death penalty. She wanted the man responsible for her only daughter's murder to be executed, and rightfully so. If I was in her position, I would probably agree. But over the years, while Christopher was in prison, Carol Dodge's position on the case changed. As she learned more and more about the forensic evidence that didn't match As well as the work done by the police department and the Innocence Project, Carol started having her doubts. And these doubts grew so big that Carol eventually began to believe that the wrong person was behind bars. After watching Christopher's taped police interviews, Carol Dodge decided to call Stephen Drizzen in 2013 Stephen Drizzen is not only a professor at Northwestern University School of Law, but he's also a leading expert in the field of false confessions. After Carol Dodge contacted him in 2013, he decided to take on Christopher's case pro bono. After studying the police tapes, Stephen Drizzen released a report in 2014 He concluded that the police coerced Christopher's confessions. They were pushed by pressure and lies, and they were enhanced by the police supplying him with facts about the crime. This report in 2014 came as a shock. Most people don't believe in false confessions. They don't think that anyone in their right mind would confess to a crime they didn't commit especially a crime as serious as first-degree murder and rape. I think most people don't believe in false confessions because we could never imagine ourselves in that situation. We can't imagine ourselves sitting in an interrogation room and confessing to a crime that we know we didn't commit. And if we can't imagine ourselves doing it, then we can't imagine others doing it. But the reality is, is that false confessions happen far more often than we could ever imagine. Of course, we don't know the exact rate of false confessions across this country or across the world, but some reports estimate about a quarter or more of the 365 people exonerated in recent years by the Innocence Project, had falsely confessed to their crimes. They were eventually exonerated by DNA or other type of forensic evidence. According to Stephen Drizen, Christopher Tapp is one of these people. In May 2016, Christopher's attorney, John Thomas, filed a motion for post-conviction relief. In his motion, Thomas argued that the police coerced Christopher's confession and that the videotapes of the three of the polygraph tests show the deception and coercion. The prosecution never turned over these videotapes to Christopher's original trial attorney. Thomas also argued the confession didn't match the forensic evidence. Christopher told investigators that the murder happened at 1 a.m., but Angie was last seen by her friends at 12.30 a.m. Her autopsy revealed that her bladder was full, which is an essential indicator that she had been asleep for a long time before someone killed her. So they couldn't have killed her within that 30-minute window, from the time that Angie was last seen at 12.30 a.m. and the time that Christopher said he committed the murder at 1 a.m. The motion for post-conviction relief was submitted to the court but would never be heard. In March 2017, the defense reached an agreement with prosecutors. The rape charges would be dropped in the agreement and his murder sentence Was reduced to credit for time served, a ruling that essentially released Christopher from prison on the spot. Even though he was a free man, Christopher was still a convicted murderer. This motion simply released him from prison but didn't vacate his conviction. He's a felon. He has spent years in prison. What kind of future is he expected to have? And there was still the elephant in the room, whose DNA was found on Angie's body and clothing. To figure this out, the Idaho Police and Innocence Project started working with Parabon Nanolabs. Parabon Nanolabs created a genetic profile from the crime scene samples. Then, they compared the profile with other samples submitted to genetic databases, like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Beginning with the profiles submitted to these databases, Parabon Nanolabs built a family tree from the suspect. Comparing samples, they were able to find relatives of the person they were searching for. In total, they found six possible suspects in their databases who may be their guy. They narrowed down their list down to six men who lived or visited Idaho Falls around the time of Andrew's murder. But after the semen sample was tested, all six of these men were eliminated as possible suspects. But later on, a seventh person emerged, a guy by the name of Brian Dripps. Brian Drips lived across the street from Angie's apartment. Idaho police questioned him directly after the murder, before the cops even looked at Christopher and Benjamin Hobbs. To get his DNA sample, the police set up surveillance around Brian Drips, waiting for a moment when he would discard something that contained his DNA. After a few days of watching him, Drips eventually dropped the cigarette butt while walking on the sidewalk. The cigarette butt allowed Parabon Nanolabs to compare that profile with the crime scene profile. The test came back with a match. Brian Drips was the contributor of DNA found on Angie's body and clothing. The police brought Brian Drips in for questioning on march fifteenth, twenty nineteen. After only a handful of questions, he confessed to everything. He admitted to raping and brutally murdering Angie about twenty years earlier. He said he acted completely alone and didn't even know Christopher. Brian Drips got away with it for over two decades while an innocent person, Christopher Tapp, spent years behind bars. In July 2019, the court vacated Christopher's murder conviction. The judge read, quote, As far as the court is concerned, you are cleared of the charges you have been living under for the past 20-plus years, end quote. Christopher, who was finally released from prison in 2017, is now married and works at a plastic bag factory. In 2020, he sued the city of Idaho Falls and several police officers involved in the case. As of today, the lawsuit is still pending. His case is considered the first time a person has been acquitted for murder by genetic genealogy. It's a case that reminds us that genetic genealogy has the power to convict, and the power to exonerate someone. The person responsible for murdering Angie Dodge, Brian Drips, pled guilty to the rape and murder just a few days ago in June 2021. The judge sentenced him to 20 years to life in prison, and at 55 years old, it's likely that Brian Drips will spend the rest of his life in prison. It can be hard to understand why a person would confess to a crime they didn't commit, especially one as serious as first-degree murder and rape. Although each case is different from the next, research suggests several factors contribute to false confessions. If a person is threatened or intimidated by law enforcement, they may be more likely to falsely confess, The use of police force during an interview has been linked to false confessions. It can also happen if police starve a person or not allow them to drink or sleep for hours of intense questioning. Police may lie to the suspect or make up facts to influence them. Police can threaten suspects if they don't confess to a crime They can say that the punishment will be far more severe if they don't confess. These police interrogation techniques have been shown to exponentially increase the chances of someone falsely confessing to a crime. So before you think that you could never confess to a crime you didn't commit, think again. To share your thoughts on Christopher Tapp's case and the murder of Angie Dodge, Be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Forensic Tales. Let me know what you think about false confessions. Do you think you could ever confess to a crime you didn't commit? To check out photos from the case, be sure to head to our website, ForensicTales.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell. For a small monthly contribution, you can gain access to bonus content and be one of the first to listen to new episodes. Or, if you simply want to support my show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. You can also help support the show by leaving us a positive review and telling friends and family about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., William R., David B., Sammy, Paula G., and Selena C. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com Please join me next week. We release a new episode every Monday. Until then, remember, not all stories have happiness.